Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You open your Bibles to Psalm 110, this magnificent messianic psalm which rings throughout the New Testament. Let it ring through our hearts this morning as well. Hear the word of the Lord. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Father, we pray that we would lift up our heads and be encouraged by this word of truth, which you have given to us to reveal your Messiah to us. Quicken us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. The New Testament is full of references to the Old Testament. Once you realize the continuity between old and new, It's impossible to read the New Testament without seeing the Old Testament shining through everywhere. But this is true in particular for the Psalms. And of all the Psalms, there is no Psalm that is cited more frequently, that is referenced more often than this one. Psalm 110, which we're going to look at this morning in hopes that it will speak to us and change us. We're going to do with Psalm 110 this morning, what Jesus did with Psalm 110 when he met with the Pharisees. We're going to try to dig into these words and understand what they're saying to us. More importantly, understand who this psalm is about. As we do that, we're going to see three things. We're going to see how Psalm 110 is basically three kinds of song, or a song that serves us in three different ways. It is a covenant song, it is a victory song, and it is a coronation song. Covenant, victory, and coronation. Let's start first with covenant. Psalm 110 is a covenant song of Yahweh. If you look in Matthew 22, you'll find the, the, the episode that I mentioned where Jesus talks through Psalm 110 with the Pharisees. It's recorded also in Mark 12 and Luke chapter 20. But Matthew gives us the most information, helps us picture that scene a little bit better. So this is Matthew 22, and we'll start in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Remember, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So he's asking them, 
whose son is the Messiah, the anointed one? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110 verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus resumes, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Matthew says, no one was able to answer him a word. Or from that day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? Think about the Pharisees in that situation where Jesus takes Psalm 110 and basically uh, twists them up in their own answers. Who is the Messiah? Whose son is he going to be? The Pharisees answer, he'll be the son of David. And then quoting a Psalm of David, Jesus says, okay, well, if he's the son of David, how can David call him Lord? And the Pharisees have no answer. But it's not because the Pharisees lack understanding. There's a lot the Pharisees do understand. They understand, for example, that Psalm 110 is a song about the Christ, about the Messiah. They already know that this is a messianic psalm, that these words of David are casting forward into the future, to a future king in the line of David. They know that the Christ, the Messiah, will be the son of David. In other words, a king from the line of David's descendants. The Pharisees understand this and they know this. But here's what the Pharisees do not understand. In fact, cannot understand. They don't understand that David called him Lord because he was the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made. This is knowledge they don't possess. And so they cannot answer Jesus's question. As you look at this Psalm, we need to do something that we've been doing throughout this series on the Psalms. We need to give you kind of the, the pull the curtain back and show you what's behind the English translation. As we've said before, the English Bible translates several different terms using the same word in English, Lord. And in your English translation, they signal that the terms are different by typography. Sometimes you'll see the, the word Lord written in all caps. Sometimes you'll see it written in small caps. Sometimes you'll see it just regular, uh, you know, capital L, little O-R-D. Those are all different references. Uh, all caps Elohim, small caps Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and then regular that's Adonai. That just means Lord. And here in this psalm, we see two of those being employed, uh, Yahweh and Adonai. So in verse 1, in the Hebrew, well, in, in the sort of English-Hebrew hybrid, you would read something like, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says to my Adonai, to my Lord. This is the father speaking to the son. So we can distinguish between the two. In verse 2, which reads in our translation, the Lord sends forth from Zion. That's Yahweh sends forth from Zion. Here the psalmist is speaking about the father to the son. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. So you get the idea. There's three different figures in that sentence. 
verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. He has sworn to you, is the implication, to Adonai, to the Son. The Son is the royal priest, the priest king, who is being addressed throughout Psalm 110. You see it again in verse 5. The Lord here is Adonai. Adonai is at your right hand. The your being referred to here is Yahweh. Adonai is now being described to Yahweh. And what Adonai will do is being narrated. The victory that he will win is being described. There's one other thing to note here, which has to do with verb tenses. You see in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. And then again at that final stanza, verses 5, 6, and 7, future tense. He will shatter. He will execute. He will shatter. He will drink. Future tense, talking about an event that is still to come. In the future, they will rise up. There will be an eschatological, like an end times, a future fulfillment, an eschatological army led by the anointed priest king, and it will win an eschatological victory in battle. A final fight will be fought, and our Lord will be victorious. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm in the sense that it's proclaiming kingship. It's a messianic psalm in the sense that it is announcing the anointed one, the son of David. But it is also, and I would argue, perhaps first and foremost, a covenantal song. Because at the heart of Psalm 110 is a promise, a promise, an oath sworn by Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, a promise that can never be revoked because he will never change his mind. When we think of the promise of salvation of God's covenant, we think of the, the relationship between God and humanity, between God and us. But here, the covenant relation, the oath that is being sworn, is between the Father and the Son. It's between the Father and the Son. There is a promise, an oath, that is being made, an unbreakable commitment that is being made. Now, yes, this is a covenant that includes us, but it includes us because we are in union with Christ. Because we are together with Christ. We are the people who are made willing in the day of his power. The people mentioned in verse 3. It's remarkable the insight that this psalm gives us into what we might call inter-Trinitarian relations. The promises made by the Father to the Son. The promises of Yahweh made to the Son of David. What are they? You look at the text, you see a series of commitments that are made. The first, I will make your enemies your footstool. I will put your enemies under your feet. That is a classic way in scripture of expressing submission. And occasionally we still have this sense today. You know, if you get into a wrestling match with someone and you defeat them, after a few body slams, you can go and stand next to them and put your foot on them and it shows that you have conquered. 
Well, that can be traced back to these biblical times, the idea that your enemies are rebelling against your authority and are conquered and brought low so that they become, in the words here, your footstool, so that you rest your feet upon your enemies. That's the promise of Yahweh to the son of David. Here's another one. Your kingdom will expand outward from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. We've already seen in Psalm 2 that Mount Zion is where the son's throne has been placed. But here we see a kingdom that, that emanates outward from Zion, that expands, that goes farther and farther. In the book of Acts, in chapter 1, Jesus speaks of this, the, the, the journey that the gospel takes beyond the borders of Mount Zion, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is fulfillment of the promise that the Father makes to the Son here in Psalm 110. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Just as we saw in the 23rd Psalm, a table set for us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus is being told, you will rule and reign even now, even amongst your enemies, those who are at war against you, you will rule. Not only that, but an army of saints, your royal priesthood, your chosen exiles will follow you, will gather around you. The meaning of the Hebrew here is is a little difficult. Uh, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. But scholars think this is a a reference to this army, this uh, uh, young warriors, the first fruit of the nation who rise up to follow their priest king like the first fruits of the dawning day speaks to the the strength and the power and the glory of their commitment to him. And these followers, these people are given to the son by the father are entrusted to him for this purpose. And then another promise, the one that is the eternal unchangeable commitment. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, if you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 14, is this mysterious figure. He's a priest king himself who who occupies both of these offices that we usually think of as being separate. He's king of Salem, Jerusalem, a priest king of Jerusalem way back in the days of Abraham. And now in the same way, in the same pattern, The Messiah will come and he will be a priest king as Melchizedek was. Only he will be one forever. Established to rule and reign forever. And what can we take away from all of this? What do these promises between father and son mean to us? In a word, they mean certainty. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. There's no assurance for us. There is no certainty for us in ourselves. And as long as you are relying on yourself to find certainty, as long as you're looking to your sincerity or your good works, or even the the quality of your repentance, you will be shaken in your faith. The reason why... We have only one answer to those who doubt. 
And that answer is the cross. The reason why is there is no other place to look but to Jesus for certainty. Don't look to the subjective experiences of your heart for certainty. You may find assurance there sometimes, but you'll never find certainty. For certainty, we look outside of ourselves to the promises that God has made. If you can conceivably doubt that God would break his promises to you, do you really believe that he would break his promises to himself? Do you really believe that the Father will neglect his promises to the Son? Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Look to the Father's promises to the Son. Look to the concrete, objective word of salvation. Anchor your soul there. When the apostle Peter was sinking under the water, there was one way of salvation. There was one thing he could do. He could look to Christ and be saved. All too often, when we struggle, when we find ourselves sinking, we say something kind of like this. um, What is the way that I can stop sinking but not have to look to Christ? Like, I get the whole Jesus thing. I get the look to the cross thing. But okay, apart from that, what other way is there? What strategy can you give me? What advice can you give me so that I might find certainty? Which is a ridiculous question to ask. Because there is no certainty apart from Christ. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Christ, the Lord Jesus, is a priest forever. He is your only comfort, your only certainty. This covenant song of Yahweh is a song about the Messiah. It is a victory song of the Messiah, no less. When you look at the final stanza of the psalm, you see a battle that is fought and won. The Lord, Adonai, Christ, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Christ will win a great battle, shattering false kings and chiefs, establishing justice, filling the rebel nations with corpses. We said last time, this warrior iconography, these images of Christ as a king victorious in battle, these are things we don't reflect on much. These are things we can grow very uncomfortable reading about. And yet in scripture, the Messiah comes not only to save his people from their sin, but also to put the world right. The Messiah comes to vanquish the enemies of order and justice. He comes to run roughshod over all those supposed kings who have declared in their hearts that there is no God and there are no consequences for our actions. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, after the the wedding feast of the Lamb, there is a vision that John has of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that depicts for us this side of Jesus Jesus, the conquering king. You look at Revelation 19, 
We'll read only part of this, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ the King comes to guarantee justice. There will be justice in Christ's kingdom. I alluded to it already, the opening words of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We read those words now and we think, oh, I get it. The fool is a philosophical atheist. But if you think about it, that's not really the kind of foolishness that's being described here. It's not just a a philosophical denial of the existence of God. It's living as if there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says there will be no consequences. There is no higher justice. There is no God who rules and reigns Over all things, I can do whatever I want. All that exists, all that is real, is the here and now. And whatever is to my advantage now, I can do it without consequences. As long as I can get away with it, there's nothing wrong with it. That's foolishness. To live that way is foolishness. Even when that foolishness is seemingly rewarded for a season, even when it seems as if, by living as if there is no God, you get ahead in life and you achieve things and you go farther than all of the wise people who live as if judgment is coming. Even then, it is foolishness to believe that there will be no reckoning because there will be. And Christ will bring justice with him. The battle imagery in Revelation and in Psalm 110 pictures for us Christ's struggle against evil, against rebellion, against injustice, against the enmity at work within us and around us. Psalm 110 declares that the Messiah in this fight will be victorious. He will triumph. He will rule and reign. This is his victory song. And that's something we can take away from it. Justice. He will execute judgment on the nations. The crazy thing is, as far as we, as 21st century human beings, have strayed from the idea of God, from belief in God, from the reality of God's word, as far as we have gotten from it, we still long for justice, for real justice. Even though in our classrooms, we tell ourselves there's no such thing. 
that, that there, there is no higher reality. There is no law-giving God who establishes uh, the, the right. That our ideas of morality are, are merely social constructs and that cultures can invent right and wrong for themselves. We tell ourselves these things in our philosophy, but not in our hearts. In our hearts, we witness injustice with grief not anthropological indifference. We don't say to ourselves, well, some people think oppression is wrong, but other people think it's right, and who are we to judge? Instead, we are repulsed. We are repulsed by injustice, by unfairness. We keep striving as if the thing we deny actually exists. And can be achieved. The good news is it does exist. And it will be achieved. The struggle for justice in this life. Although it can never be fully realized. Is not futile. Because every little victory along the way. Is like a sign. A reminder of what is to come. Every time in this life. Injustice is righted and overcome. We get a little bit of a glimpse into what it will be like when King Jesus establishes his rule and reign over all reality. Every little victory is a sign of the justice that is to come. And it gives us hope in the midst of the darkness. So yeah, this... Is a covenantal song and it's a victory song, but finally it's a coronation song as well. At the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, this is where he turns. He looks at the Psalms in general and then in particular Psalm 110 and he quotes it. This is the, the end of the Acts 2 sermon that we read the beginning of earlier in our service, uh, starting in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is Peter's sermon. That is his presentation of the gospel. And there is no call to action. He ends his sermon without saying repent and believe yet that comes, but it hasn't come yet. Instead, the culmination of his gospel sermon is a declaration, not an appeal, a declaration. God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, He proclaims the kingship of Jesus. Pentecost is an occasion of the pouring out of the Spirit. And that act of pouring out is an act of anointing, which is why we sometimes talk about it that way, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And anointing is for kings. Anointing is for kings. Sermon in Acts 2 is basically a coronation sermon proclaiming the kingship of Christ. And the kingship 
in a smaller way of his followers. And then they react. We keep reading in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I remember a few years ago after a political election, a friend of mine and I were speaking at an event, and afterwards a group of people kind of cornered him and, and were asking him questions. And, and in the wake of this election, they were asking, what are we going to do? Because in their minds, the, the person elected was their enemy and now had gained power, and they were going to have to do something about it because they knew the new ruler was against them. In the same way, the people who hear the declaration of Jesus' kingship Say, brothers, what shall we do? It's prompted by the realization there's a new king in town, and he's against us. If Jesus is king, what shall we do? Because we are unjust. We are impure. We are the reason he died, which is the point that Peter is making. And then Peter says, what should you do? Repent and believe. You should reconcile yourself to the king. Don't be his enemy. Don't be a rebel. Make peace with the king. And here's the amazing thing. Although they were enemies to the king, and so rightly felt the threat that leads them to ask, what shall we do? Although they were his enemies, Peter says, the promise is for you. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And the promise is for you. There's certainty in Psalm 110. There's justice in Psalm 110. But above all else, there is Jesus in Psalm 110. That's what Psalm 110 is offering us. Like the victor who quenches his thirst after the battle in in verse 7. There's a rest, there's a refreshment that is waiting for us after this victory is won. You may be struggling with uncertainty. You may be discouraged by injustice. But this psalm holds out the answer to you. And there is no other answer but Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.